Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is novelist Dan Petrosini. Dan has traveled the globe extensively and plucks ideas for novels from his own experiences and observations. He's perpetually in the midst of another book, and Dan has taught at several colleges in the Northeast and splits his time between Florida and New York City, where he was born. His most recent release, Uncertain Stakes, features Detective Luca of the Collier County Sheriff's Office in Southwest Florida, which is the real-life home of a portion of Everglades National Park, the city of Naples, and Marco Island. As book nine in that series, Uncertain Stakes, published on October 8th, and the previous novel, entitled A Killer Missteps, came out just before that. Dan, I appreciate you making time. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Gavin. Um, I, I'm a listener as well, so it's pleased to be on this side. <laughs> yeah. Long-time listener, first-time caller, right? Exactly. Now, I, I've just started reading the, in the, about the last week, uh, reading Uncertain Stakes, and this is a, a really good detective story. What, what do you want readers to know about this? Um, well, first, that uh, the Detective Luca, um, who I stumble upon, 10 books ago or so, <laughs> um, is a real person just like you and I, and he has his own flaws, um, a little bit different twist uh, to it than, uh, than, let's say, like a Harry Bosch, who mm-hmm. I think is, who I wish I created, but I, oh, uh, yeah. he's a little, he's a little um, unrealistic the way I view life, um, but certainly a phenomenal character. But Detective Luca is a real, real person. Um, and has his real problems in his personal life and in the back of his own head. And the people that he encounters in life, like the two of us, have flaws. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just like to keep it real. That, that, that's really what I'd like to say, like to keep it real. And how difficult it is in many cases for a detective to um, determine who it is that really did it. It's not just cut. Everything TV shows tend to make it seem like it's a one, two, three. We get some yeah. some evidence, stick it in the lab, and bingo, we got the killer. It's just Solve not, the crime in an hour. Yeah. Yes, it just doesn't happen that way, as you know. Being from New York City, you decided to set this series in Florida, and I, I kind of presume that had to be a tough decision. I mean, are, are there t- already too many fictional capers set in New York, or did you have other reasons for putting Luca in Collier County? Well, originally Luca, in the first book— um, was set in New Jersey, in Monmouth County, New Jersey, which is an area that I lived in for a number of years. And uh, But I had made the transition previous to that down to Florida, and I thought it would be good to take him with me, <laughs> even though I went I yeah. came down first, because I, I knew the area, and it was, uh, Luca had some struggles, like we all do in life. He got himself divorced, he lost a partner, and he was looking for a fresh start. So he came down to to what we call paradise down here. Um, mm-hmm. But as we all know, paradise is only surface deep. And and, be- yes. and, and beneath the, the signing sun, there's a lot of bad stuff still happening. So uh, that, that's, that's why I brought him down here. And um, he also has an idealistically sense that he came down here as just being paradise, and he wants to keep it that way. So he's fighting oh, well, yeah. a struggle to keep it that way, which you know is a difficult task. Yeah, definitely an uphill battle, mm-hmm. you know. No question. It, it seems to me that there's uh, every time Florida makes the news, it's got to be one of the places people go to die in new and strange ways. <laughs> you know, it, it's just absolutely amazing. You know, the the news will be something about you know man 
dies half eaten by crocodile, half eaten by wood chipper. Yeah, you know? there's no there's no doubt. You know, as now, I think we're the third most popular state. So, of course, there's a mm-hmm. lot of strange happenings. Uh, where where we are uh, and where Luca is set is in uh, in what we like to call a bubble. Um, it's a fairly it's a very prosperous town, and everything is clean mm-hmm. and yes. green, which is what I love about it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that crime doesn't happen here. Um, so, sure. you know, people live in gated communities, this false sense of security. Um, but there are things happening. There are things happening. And they're not publicized, um, as, they, as my opinion, as they should be. Yeah, and I, and I think the, that type of environment lends itself, especially to a fiction author, as a really interesting place where, you know, uh, appearances are deceiving and things are, are not what they what they seem. But, you know, I think some of the most dangerous and prolific predators hide in those kind of environments, and they do so really well. Killers have always been our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends. And everyone yes. espouses shock that Johnny <laughs> was, I can't believe it, you know, but uh, that, that it, it's really, uh, it's, self, it's self-delusion. And I think it's purposeful uh, because facing the facts sometimes is, 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 is uncomfortable. And again, down yes. here, people, for, you have a couple of things. You have a lot of wealth down here um, in certain pockets, um, and but you also have a lot of retirees coming down. So they want to come. They don't want to move. They don't want to acknowledge that there could be crime, right? Uh, that would be mm-hmm. that right. would like, you would look like a kind of foolish to yes. you know, work 30 years of your life to, to retire to a place and then find out that there's, uh, there's a little bit of dirt under the carpet, you know? <laughs> So you specifically thank Sergeant Craig Pirelli for his assistance in counsel to add authenticity to your characters and story and and certain stakes. And I wonder how that relationship came about and how you fostered it to the point that presumably uh, the sergeant trusted you enough to have candid conversations about the job and uh, cop life. Well, he's been a friend of mine um, for years. uh, And, you know, not having uh, the, uh, the inside information of someone like yourself uh, with law enforcement, I never worked in law enforcement. I've had friends who are police officers, uh, and I and I wanted to create a character and situations that are real. Uh, as as a reader and as a, a viewer of of movies and television, it really gets under my <laughs> skin when they don't accurately portray things. Um, um, now, of course, we all have you know fictional license, and I don't. Uh, you know, I take a little bit of liberties with him, but I want to make sure it's as accurate as possible. So I rely on him, you know, to bounce situations off. Is this realistic? Would this happen? How would how would a law enforcement officer approach this particular situation? And I also have one or two contacts um, in the Collier County Sheriff's Office who have also helped me. Um, and I've even spoken to other friends, excuse me, other uh, groups the folks within those groups, um, you know, like Adam Richardson and mm-hmm. Patrick O'Donnell, who yeah. have uh, have those, and just to just to make sure that uh, uh, the situation that I'm asking a reader to buy into is accurate. Now at this point, how many hours of this type of research? How many write-alongs do you think you've been on to try to get these characters right? Oh my God, um, God just. Between the amount, of, between the the uh, oh gosh, endless conversations, mm-hmm. because also when you're speaking to uh, to someone who's actually been in the street or driving the car or knocked on that door, uh, or you know looked in the you know found the body in the parking lot, um, 
I do a tremendous amount of research. I'm, I'm pretty voracious in terms of reading uh, about, about crime, about law enforcement's approach to it. Um, you all, it also germinates ideas. You know, you just you have all these, these situations that you kind of glue this information that Officer XYZ told you uh, with, with an experience that someone else had. And you go, wow, that, 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 that's an interesting mm -hmm. dynamic. You know, how can I put that into a book? You know, so I spend I spend a lot of time, uh, as my wife says, that's all you do. You're obsessive. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so uh, but I, I, I enjoy it. And, and I, I'm I'm continually learning. I, I'm a very curious individual. I always have been. And um, and I enjoy learning. I enjoy learning. I enjoy learning about the situations and, and my regard for offices and the, the folks who put their lives on the line every day is is gone sky high. And it also bothers me that the public perception doesn't, you know, give the respect that is due. Anytime you folks stop a car, you know, have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the things I think, you know, it's really tough to, to convey that in, in words, I, I think they actually don't exist to adequately help people understand what that's like. Uh, I think it's something that has to be experienced to be understood. And until, you know, you're looking at, you know, that, that back bumper and suspicious movement inside the car that are they hiding something or retrieving something? And, you know, until you face that danger yourself and that uncertainty, there's no words I can put down that are going to help you help you feel that, um, at least not accurately. No, 100%. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, every experience that we have individually, right, forms our view of the world. So to think that an officer who, who is in these situations all the time, his view of the world, whether he becomes jaded or not, you know, um, is, is not going to be impacted by his experience is, is, is foolish. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. um, and then to see some, some and, to, and to work in certain environments, uh, you know, eight hours a day in, you know, very depressing and dangerous situations, you just can't come home and just turn it off. So mm -hmm. um, there, there's there's overhang. Yeah, there. there is. And now, and all your all your research, all your experiences, putting all all of this together, are there any kind of aha moments that really stand out um, as you were either on ride-alongs or talking with cops that something like really clicked and and impacted you as a writer? I, I wouldn't say there was one one moment. It's more like a slow build to trying to understand. Um, and again, you know, some of this, this psychological thing, you can't overwhelm a reader with it, right? Because a reader wants mm -hmm. to pick up a police procedural and they want to, they want, they want to, they want to find out who, who, you know, who's responsible for the body, that type of thing. So if you got too much into the head, that's not what I do, but I think, um, not acknowledging that there is some of that stuff going on is, is probably a mistake for, for a reader like myself. On your site, you discuss a belief in taking action, vigorously pursuing dreams over the objections raised by our intrinsic fears. And th that reminded me of Thomas Edison's quote about people failing to recognize opportunity because it often shows up in overalls and looks a lot like work. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yes, I, I, 
the voice, the inner, our inner voice, right? The inner voice mm-hmm. that we all have uh, is the most powerful one that, that we'll ever hear. Um, mm-hmm. And too often that, that, that uh, voice is negative. We're afraid. Yes. We're afraid to fail. We're afraid to try. You know, we're uh-huh. worried about how we're going to look to others. At the end of the day, if you're not able to overcome those, those um, fears and make yourself uncomfortable, you're never going to grow <laughs> and you'll never have a chance yeah. of, at, assume, at achieving any of your goals. Yeah. You know, everything that you, at least in my experience, everything that I've accomplished or that I've achieved in life has always come with a combination of effort and risk. And, you know, I don't think you can have anything worthwhile without both of those ingredients. And if you did, it would cheapen the end result. A hundred percent, you know, we, and, and our culture is littered with people who had success thrown at them at early ages or some instantaneous success mm-hmm. and yeah. they end up becoming maybe the subjects of our crime novels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. But um, I, since you gave a nice quote there, I wanted to, my actual all time pay, favorite quote, and I can't remember who actually said this, but is that the price of discipline is always less than the cost of regret. Yes. So, yep, so, I like that. Yeah, so try, folks, man, try to try to accomplish something. Whatever, everybody has wants, but you know, mm-hmm. turn that want into something, into action. Take take the first step, and and the culture today is it kind of makes it seems like it is instantaneous. As you open the show up, it's not mm-hmm. instantaneous. It's a bunch of little steps. <laughs> yeah, consistent yeah. application. You know, the, it is, you know, that I think, and that's a a major theme of this this podcast in general is that I, I my belief that it only takes about a decade of consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success, and you know, without those frequent, oftentimes daily efforts, that you know, maybe it's only getting a hundred words in today or a thousand words tomorrow, um, those things eventually add up to something worth achieving. But you know, you don't. Uh, go out and climb Mount Everest before you learn how to climb mountains. You climb a lot of other mountains before you get to that base camp. And to me, the idea of you know manifestation is simply putting your dreams and goals into achievable steps, and then taking small steps each day toward those bigger objectives. You know, it's basically putting down a plan and following. Yeah. If you, I don't know how you feel, but if I, I if I look back at the, my earlier books and the books that never that I never put into print, um, they're terrible, you know. <laughs> yeah. But but um, and they also took me god awful years and years to to yeah to way too it, long to get yeah. it done, um, and I'm always amazed, and I, I something I should probably look into is take three or four debut authors who were successes with their first books. And, and try to learn a little more about them and try to find out, was it really, what was the secret sauce that how did they break through? Because at the end of the yeah. day, it's, it's a constant application to refine your craft and to tell a better story. Um, and I know, uh, and this is, this is, I say this with total humility, I'm a heck of a lot better in, in, uh, today than I was, you know, a dozen books ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things, one of the reasons that I, I started this podcast, really, I believe that the best way to learn something is to teach something. And, you know, I, I don't you know, want to put myself, you know, in, in a position of being a, 
a, a, a mentor or a, a, a writing coach myself, but I think that this show helps facilitate those kind of conversations. Um, but what it has also oh. done for me personally is that it's forced me to read somewhere around 80 books this year. Yeah, that's nice. And nice. from some of the biggest names in and most successful authors in the industry. And I've probably only finished about 30 of them because even people writing at that level or that commercial success, something happened along the way that it just, I lost interest. It lost pace. You know, it got too unrealistic, too fictional. Um, but the ones, even, even from those books that I didn't finish, you learn a tremendous amount about how not to do something or how I choose not to do something. And it's been uh, basically, we were talking earlier about, uh, about a, you know, the, the writing woodshed being real similar to musicians. And I really feel like that's what this, this year has been. I think, I think it's tremendous that what you're doing, uh, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that when, you, uh, when you're teaching, when you're not really in a teaching role, you're, you're just bringing information up, right? You're asking mm -hmm. folks. Right. It, it, is, it is so helpful. Um, the, I'm, I'm in the same camp as you are. I have a difficult time. I read a lot as well. Um, and I have a difficult time finishing a lot of books. Uh, mm -hmm. where I used to torture myself to get to the end, <laughs> as, we, as, yes. as most of us probably did, um, because it just gets too far off. I, I need it to be kept real. I need it to be kept real, and I need, I need a fast-paced book. Um, and I, and I, used to, I realized that my style of writing changed from – I used to be quite dense because I love information. So when I first started, yes. I, I, you know, I, was, I was weighing down readers. Now I have a very, very – all my – well, let's say the last 10 or 12 are very fast paced books, um, which is something I like. I like to be dragged, mm -hmm. you know, pulled through a story and I like short yes. chapters and, and all of that jazz. Um, but, but I also wanted to, you, you kind of opened the door a little bit about, um, you know, working on the craft. And one thing I, mm -hmm. I found uh, is a myth is so-called inspiration, you know, to be inspired and um, yeah, we have an idea but the actual practice of putting that idea into a story is it takes not inspiration. <laughs> it takes sitting mm -hmm. your, your tail in a chair and trying yeah. to write and it doesn't come out. Um, and, and it's a struggle. And I, and that, and I have more days like that than I do of days that I could knock out a thousand words in four hours and feel like I had, you know, uh, I'm not a big word count guy, although mm -hmm. I have a goal of a thousand a day. But I very rarely will get over 2,000. Um, but there are plenty of days where I struggle and can get 300 or 400. But those three or 400 add up, and it keeps you, it, it keeps the story moving. Um, yes. So uh, it, it's not it, – it, there's, there's no – I'm, I'm sure uh, there's really no such thing as writer's block, in my opinion. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of unwillingness, of your unwillingness to yeah. confront the fact that it's not coming. And, and just force it out. Uh, the, this series is in presented in first person, and I, I wonder if that was a deliberate decision because of the genre, or if that was the way that the, the detective Luke kind of revealed himself to you when you were sussing out your characters. Well, the story about how we came about is 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 quite uh, it's a little lengthy, but I was writing. I had an, I was watching a HBO documentary a few years ago called Crash Reel, and it was about two snowboarders, and one of them, which went on to tremendous fame, was a fellow by the name of Sean White, which mm -hmm. everyone knows, 
but the kid who was who was competing against him to get on the Olympic team was actually better than Sean White. And this documentary uh, was following the Olympic trials. Wow. Uh, this one one kid fell and had gotten a brain injury. And then the whole story shifted from, you know, snowboarding to the kid's recovery and the struggles and uh, the family interaction. And and it was actually a very uh, – the movie hit me hard. Uh, I actually cried a few times about mm-hmm. it because of the family struggles. But during watching that, I got the idea. I said, "What would happen if you if there was a brain injury and you were committed and you were uh, accused of murder, but you had a brain wow. injury?" Yeah. So that's how I, I wrote the book. This book called "Am I the Killer?" And and in and in writing the book, I needed a detective to investigate this murder, and I this guy came to me, <laughs> and at that time, but so that's written in third person mm-hmm. when he comes into the book, um, and he comes into the book pretty far in, about halfway or so. Um, and when I, I started to write about Luca, uh, going after this case, Luca basically took over the book Wow! <laughs> and, and I realized I, I was at, I had a problem because the book was not about Luca. It wasn't a police procedural at that point. It was, it was a story exploring, you know, brain injury and a murder and memory mm-hmm. and things like that. More of a psychological thriller type yeah. of a book. Yeah. Uh, so I stopped and I, I really didn't know what to do. I was thinking about splitting it into two books. And then I actually remembered what Stephen King said, that every book has a fossil that's unearthed. You have a, a writer writes a book about a subject because there's something he wants to explore. He calls it a fossil. And always make sure you stick back to that original idea. So I pared it back a little bit and went back to the, the, to the psychological aspect about it, the memory. But I knew that Luca would possibly be somebody I would come back to. Um, and that's how he came to being. And when, when he was the main focus of the book, when I decided to create a series, um, I didn't immediately do it. I, was, I started the second book, and then I had a science fiction book that I wanted to get out um, beforehand. So I put it on hold, and then... When I came back to Luca, I wrote it in first person. I felt it was the best way to explore his personality. And when did you know that you wanted to write, and how did you go about studying creative writing? Well, I, I, I've always been a pretty expressive individual, uh, and I actually wrote my first story when I was 10 years old for my mother about a Martian. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you still have it? I, that's my, one of my biggest regrets that not, along with my mom not being around, but I wish I had that oh, story. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had that story. Um, so I, I, I was always writing, um, but never willing to share, right. Uh, mm-hmm. what you wrote and yeah. like most of us, you have this great idea and you go, oh, this is unbelievable. And you start, you start doing it and then you get to the, let's say the middle mm-hmm. and you go, oh, this is terrible. You know, and then you just put it away. And that was something that kind of dogged me for years and years and years, never being able to finish something. And because uh, I didn't practice what I now preach, <laughs> which, right. is, which is sit there and force it out. And one of the interesting things that I've kind of, of, of uh, discovered, and I've, I've read other folks uh, have similar experiences, is that when, when, it's, when you're forcing it out and when you're struggling to write, uh, you think it's not as good as when it kind of flows. Mm-hmm. But if you go, what, what I, anyway, in my experience, 
when I go back and look at it or read it, I can't tell what was forced and what actually flowed. Yes. Yep. Do I you feel the that. same way? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty remarkable. So that, that, mm-hmm. that, that's a testament that you, you gotta <laughs> stick with it and just yes. get it done, you know? Um, and the other thing that I do, uh, which I've learned to do and fairly recently, uh, is to, when I'm stuck, if you will, uh, I, I, on, on a particular point or a particular theme or, or some plot point, I will put it on hold and I will write something else that needs to be written in that book anyway. Mm-hmm. There's, there's other things. There's a thread that has to be followed somewhere else. So I'll follow that thread. And during that process, you know, it, it kind of uh, frees up some mental capacity to figure out um, the, the problem that you were stuck on. So, yeah, the, the first novel that I published, it uh, I wrote very much in, like you were just talking about, that I would go in and write whatever I felt like writing that day. Yeah. And so it came together as this patchwork that, you know, it reads like it was written in in order, but was not at all. And yeah. my process has evolved now to the point that what works for me today, not better or worse, just effective today, is that I am an extreme plotter. And... Yeah. I start with an Excel spreadsheet on the obligatory scenes and the plot points that I want in the story. Uh, that goes to a uh, an easel board with an outline because I'm uh, pretty visual. And then that goes to uh, into a Word document into, into Shakespeare where I actually do the writing. And I start with page one and I end with the final scene. Um, along the way... A lot, it's not uncommon as I'm writing one scene that I'll think of uh, a plot point in arc or something that I want to make sure and include much like, you know, a, a, an inspired moment. Um, so I'll go ahead and make a note in that scene because I already have a chapter for it. But generally I start with page one and end with page 300 and something. I'm, I'm not as disciplined uh, and I've tried to have extreme plotting uh, or, you know, let's call it, a detailed outline mm-hmm. I listened to Ken Follett once uh, in a master class. And he, he uh, went on to say that these his outlines, how easy it was to write the book after you had the outline. Mm-hmm. Um, but his outlines were like you know, 30 pages of, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. and I, I tried to do that and I, I couldn't, it, it, maybe it was too hard. Uh, I felt it was actually limiting a little bit that I, I couldn't let the characters go you know, where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I felt they were penned in. Now that might be, obviously, you know, Mr. Follett <laughs> knows what he's doing. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so I kind of, I, I bounce around a little bit, but I always have um, a thin outline when I begin. I have a thin outline, uh, just a bunch of points, you know, you would call them possibly chapters, but I only mm-hmm. probably have 15 or so of main points that are going to happen uh, in a progression of a story. And then as I go along, I, I start to add and add and add, um, and, uh, and get ideas from the characters. And it might be so because, uh, the main character, uh, is someone that I've been writing about now for, you know, 11 books. So, uh, I, it may be a little easier to do that. Yes. I don't know. Um, but I, I'd love to have an outline. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Now, how does your professional and personal life play into your writing and storytelling? Well, uh, you can't avoid who we are, our experiences, right? Uh, I think mm-hmm. one of, I, I forget who it was that um, said that you have to fight like a dog to keep yourself out of the books. We just encountered someone, my wife and I, just a few days ago, actually, that, that uh, was, was reading the, the book, The Uncertain Stakes, and he said, oh, you know, that that point is so depressing or something to that degree. And, you know, uh, is that you? Is that how you really think about things? And my wife said, uh, well, that, not that, that but you, you, he can't keep himself out of his books. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and I said that that's I, I, I have a complete. Of course, I don't you know, you don't want to read a, any anyone's book and have it mm-hmm. be a, a soapbox for their viewpoint. Yes. Right. That is, that would be so boring and uh, it would be crazy. So, I mean, in a simplistic way, I don't eat meat, but I have to have my characters eating meat. Uh, I can't have them being vegetarians. I'm not a vegetarian, but to, to that's that's a simplistic way of of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of saying it. Um, but you got to be careful no matter where you are on a particular political spectrum or how you feel about the culture. Um, some of you is going to seep in the book, but you can't have it soaking <laughs> If someone in the listening audience wanted to write their own Dan Petrosini character who gallivants back and forth between Florida and New York, teaches at the local colleges, and solves murders and mysteries in his spare time, what would you most like to see them get right about that character? That I have empathy. That I have empathy um, for, for anyone walking the planet, you know. That I don't want to criticize until I someone uh, till I understand what that person has gone through. Uh, you know, the easiest way to say it is: it's easier to say this guy is you know driving slow in front of you, and oh gosh, mm-hmm. come on, hurry up! I have to get where I have. But you have no idea; he may just been come out of the doctor's office and told that his wife has some serious illness or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so just to try to take a step back. Before, uh, before you, you know, judge, right? Try to be less judgmental. All my life, I've always tried to be less judgmental. It's, it's a struggle. <laughs> yes, it is. It's it part is of the human great, condition. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, now that I'm 60, uh, I have a little bit. Uh, maybe uh, it's taken this long for me to, to, to get there. Um, have a little more empathy, uh, and also to be optimistic, optimistic and mm-hmm. enthusiastic. And I don't care what it is that you do. Um, I've encountered, I've traveled around a bit, and I always remember a few people that you inter- interact with that are doing jobs that in America uh, would be shunned upon, right? They wouldn't be, right. you would you go, you know, I'm, I, you would try to disguise it. But they are, they may be the, the focaccia maker in some little uh, pizzeria somewhere, but he's the proudest focaccia maker mm-hmm. <laughs> on the yeah. planet. Or, uh, or the proudest janitor, whatever it is that yes. you do, you know, um, if you don't like what you're doing, find something else to do. But while you're doing that thing, do it the mm-hmm. best you can. Yeah, that was something my, my granddad always told us growing up was, you know, if you ever find yourself in the position of a janitor, be yeah. the best janitor that you can be. And, you know, there is there is pride and dignity in work, regardless of what that work is. And, you know, I think that's something that really gets lost, especially in the social media backdrop of this I, me society and comparing our fully uh, formed story to everyone else's highlight reel yeah, that we get to see. It's, it's, 
I agree with you a thousand percent. I mean, the world the world spins because of everyone mm-hmm. making their contribution, irrespective of whether or not the spotlight's shining yes. on you or not. You know, um, and then if you're in a situation which is you know not what you consider not up to your means, well, work like a dog and get to the next level where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to, to, to as you said, to shun hard work, that's what we're made of. You know. Being a pretty ferocious reader, I wonder who your favorite fictional investigator is in, in books, TV, or film that you follow. Um, oof. You know, I always had an affection for Wallander. You know, Kurt Wallander. He's, he's, he's disillusioned, <laughs> uh, but he still uh, has a methodical, uh, unrelenting uh, desire to find the truth. And so I guess I, 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 kinda, I, I enjoyed that series. I do. I um, yeah, I like him and kind of, I, I love the way Nesbo and I'm sticking with the Scandinavians here. I'm not sure why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I like, um, Joe Nesbo and, uh, Harry Hull. He, 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 he's an interesting guy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, yes. Now as a, as a listener of the podcast, I'm, I'm sure you know the last question that's coming, but I'm going to ask anyway, cause it's fun for me. Uh, God forbid it should come to pass, Dan, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want those same fictional investigators assigned to your homicide? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've heard this question, and I, I always am interested at, the, at everyone's response. I probably uh, – so one of my beliefs, and I express this to Luca, <laughs> is that the best revenge is one that has gone too far. So <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> so ra- yeah. rather than choose somebody like Jack Reach or Harry Hole, I- I'll stick with Wallander or, um, you know, another interesting character. And it might be because I don't listen to a lot of audio books, mm-hmm. but uh, one that stuck to me was Anthony Horowitz's uh, Magpie Murders, where Atticus Pund, who is a elderly uh, German investigator, detective. Um, and he, he was good. He, he, I, I, that name, some reason that's been sticking with me, that voice, it could have been just the way it was, uh, whoever it was that played his role in the book, the accent and everything like that. He, he, he's, he, he wasn't disillusioned. He was kind of, uh, he wasn't Columbo-ish. He was, he was just, uh, quiet and consistent and, uh, to bring the case to a conclusion. So he was a good guy, but I go with Kurt Wallander. I, I, I'll go with him. Well, that uh, officially puts him up on the murder board. Oh, no one's had him. Yeah, no one's had him. Yeah. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time, Dan. It's been a a pleasure having you on the show, and I I genuinely appreciate your your kind words. Well, I'm ecstatic to be here today to have the chance to chat with you. You have an extremely engaging uh, style, and I think you're doing a service to to the listeners and to the writers by bringing a bunch of varied guests on. I've learned some things for sure. Um, from and listening to your podcasts, and that some of it's been, you know, inspired me in a motivational way, and others have just given me things to think about. And I picked up a couple of tips, some inside uh, baseball, if you will. So keep up the good work. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed author and inspirational mentor Dan Petrosini. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.